Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. What I wanted to share with you all in this hopefully brief session uh, are some primarily Quranic reflections uh, on man in the world, man's place in the world. The, now much of the verses I might be mentioning you have verses that would be known to you all, but I think it's uh, you know, an excellent place to start this retreat is just by reconnecting uh, with some ideas about what it really means to be in the world. The, the story of man in the world is ultimately the story of man. What is our purpose here? How do we relate with everything around us? Uh, you know, we live in a time we have great technology and facts, but what does everything mean and what do we mean uh, in the midst of all of this? That's a question only that religion can answer. And so what I wanted was just, like I said, some verses and some points of reflection for us to maybe think about uh, as we walk in the garden, walk in the rain, go cycling, uh, talk to our friends other, un under the stars, uh, all the other activities, inshallah ta'ala, we'll be engaging in together uh, over the next few days. And there's a few, I guess, key heading points under which I wanted to lay out, I guess, my primarily Quranic uh, reflections. The first part of this relationship with the world, with the, with the environment, with the earth, with the sky, how does that relationship start? The very first point is ultimately awe to feel awestruck by the world around us. Al-Imam al-Ghazali, he says, you know, if there's a great figure from the past and you really wanted to know something about that person, what would you do? You would try, to get, you would try to your best to get your hands on everything that person wrote. So that's your only way to get into the mind of this great figure that you're so interested in. And this world is the book of God. And what the Quran keeps reminding us of is what do we have eyes and ears and noses, all these senses for, is to observe this world. And the world, what the Quran reminds us, is not a veil from God, but it is the sight through which he reveals himself to us. And so he made this world beautiful. And he asked us to marvel at its beauty beyond which to then connect to the beauty of the one whose world this is. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, for example, in the Holy Quran, Amman samawati wal ard. Is he the one who created this heavens and the earth? And he set down for you that wonderful rain from the sky. And so we, we, again, we in our might, in our majesty, in our glory, we brought out from this earth gardens of bahja. Bahja is an Arabic word which speaks of splendid colors. Colors and beauty and variety that when you observe it, you feel ibtihaj, which is what? Surur, it's joy, it's happiness. Gardens of beautiful colors which make you happy when you see them. Is there really a God alongside Allah? Or 
said before that, and you're unable to bring out even one tree of this glory that's in front of you. Is there really a God besides Allah? Rather, these are people who are just going off, going away. And so the beauty is important. Part of what it means to be a, be a human in the world is to take time to smell the flowers and to connect through them to the all-beautiful, Jalla Jalaluhu. And he says elsewhere, أَفَلَمْ يَنْظُرُ إِلَى السَّمَاءِ فَوْقَهُمْ Don't they really look and connect to that sky above them? كَيْفَ بَنَيْنَاهَا How we constructed it, وَزَيَّنَّاهَا And we adorned it beautifully with its stars. وَمَا لَهَا مِنْ فُرُوجٍ And there's no gap which is like out of place in all of this. وَالْأَرْضَ مَدَدَنَاهَا And the earth we spread it out. وَأَلْقَيْنَا فِيهَا رَوَاسِي And we've planted therein these mountains that keep it all firm. وَأَنْبَتْنَا فِيهَا مِنْ كُلِّ زَوْجٍ بَهِيجٍ Again, we've made there in every category of being which is just marvelous, splendid, colorful, beautiful. Why? تَبْصِرَةً وَذِكْرَى لِكُلِّ عَبْدٍ مُنِيبٍ So it could be a, something to open up your inner eye. Something to connect with your inner mind. And who would do this? Every slave who's looking for a way to return, a way to go back to the Lord. And elsewhere, again, verses go on and on. He speaks of the earth with different patches. You know, some are arid and some are fertile, in which you have gardens of grapes and palm trees. And then he mentions Jalla Jalaluhu, but all of it is watered with a singular water. And yet, some is more tasty than others. And in that are signs for people who really use their minds. Again, to look through the beauty and the multiplicity to the one behind all of that. And so the relationship starts with awe. And the Quran points out that we want to keep the awe fresh. And that's why it's important to have a reminder of things that we already know. Because familiarity makes us sometimes forget what is so incredible about the world. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about the animals, for example. That what, why is he given us animals to ride, he says, so that you may settle yourselves on their back. And greater than that, That in that very moment, you settle on the back of your mind, riding beast, at that very moment, to remember the blessing of your Lord. And he even gives you a prayer to say, How amazing. How perfect, how beyond every category is that being who subjugated this beast to us. We are utterly incagging to feel small in front of the world. We, we couldn't do that. And we're returning back to our Lord. And so the beginning of it then is this awe. And, and the sunnah of the Prophet showed you how to feed this awe into all of your life. So for example, our master Abdullah ibn Abbas عنهما, was a young boy in the life of the Prophet The Prophet had married his aunt. And so sometimes he would sleep over at his aunt's house when the Prophet was there. So he could observe some of the Prophet's habits. And he narrates about the Prophet's night worship. When the Prophet woke up in the middle of the night to pray, his first stop wasn't actually the prayer mat. His first step was actually just to step outside the house. And he said, the Prophet stepped outside the house and just looked up at the sky, looked up at the stars. 
the beginning of night worship, connecting to the stars, and reciting some verses from the end of Surah Ali Imran, which in translation say that in the creation of the heavens and the earth and the changing of the night and the day are signs of people who reflect, people who remember God when sitting and when standing and sitting and on their sides, and they say, Rabbana ma khalaqta hadha batilan. Oh my Lord, you didn't create this for nothing. Subhanak, you're too perfect to create something so perfect for nothing. And so it's all for something. And so it ends with faqina adhab nar So save us from that punishment. What's the punishment? Of us not coming up to what we were made for, as we're about to see. Or, or the Prophet actually Ibn Abbas said that he looked at the stars, sorry, he recited this verse about that nothing in this beautiful world is in vain. Then he would come in, clean his teeth, perform his ablutions, pray his night prayers. And on this one incident, Sahih Bukhari, the Prophet lied on his side, had a break, got up, went back outside, looked at the stars, recited the verse, and then prayed some more. Again, showing what it means to live in harmony, showing what it means to connect to Allah uh, through this world of his. Uh, when looking at the moon, he reminded his people, again, to connect with everything. Uh, a prayer, when we see the new moon, oh Allah, make it something that rises over us with peace, with serenity, with faith. And then to address the moon, my Lord and your Lord is one, it's Allah. That's an odd idea to communicate with the moon. Brings us to our second point. So the first point, the initial relationship is awe, just feeling so small in front of everything. And seeing God through all of that. And the second point is what? It's a relationship. It's a very interesting relationship a sort of mutual love between man and the world. And it's very interesting, so a lot of, a number of Quranic verses and prophetic hadiths, they speak about the world, again the world, animals, birds, trees, plants, everything, as if it has a form of consciousness that's proper to it, just like we have a form of consciousness that's proper to us. And the shared consciousness brings us together because it's meant to be directed to one idea, What's that one idea? Is to be directed to God, directed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So for example, about this idea of this directedness of the world, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Hajj, Alam tara, haven't you seen? This is a verse of prostration, I meant to react to this verse. Haven't you seen that everything, or those in the sky, and those on the earth prostrate to God? And then explicitly, was shams and the sun, wal qamar and the moon, wal nujum and the stars, wal jibal, wal shajaru, wal dawabu and the mountains and the trees and the animals. Haven't you seen? I, he wants you to connect with that. Haven't you seen? They're all in harmony. And what's that harmony? It's that single directedness to that one direction, which is to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is wa kathirun min al nas, and many people likewise are in this harmony. وَكَثِيرٌ حَقَّ عَلَيْهِ الْعَذَابِ But there are many who deserve to be punished, i.e. Why? Because in the whole universe, they're the only ones out of sync. They don't fit. And that's why the verse ends, وَمَنْ يُهِنِ اللَّهُ فَمَا لَهُمْ مِنْ مُكْرِمٍ The one whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala insults and abases, who's there to honor him? What does it mean to be insulted by God? It's to be out of harmony with the world. What is it to be in harmony with the world? It's to share it. In what? In this directedness to the one who is the source of everything. That's why it says elsewhere again, this idea of a, a form of consciousness that everything has that's proper to it. 
He says again, The heavens, the earth, and all in them are glorifying his praise. But you don't comprehend that praise. But it's all there. So the point is, where are you in relation to all of that? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also reminds again this idea of the harmony of everything. And the point of man is, do you fit in that harmony or do you fit out? So he reminds us about animals, that they are communities like yourselves. And the Prophet told us about this idea then, how to react, how to connect to the living praise of God in the world. He says in a hadith in Sahih Bukhari about a previous you know, prophet of a previous nation who was once bit by an ant. And he said to people to burn this ant colony. Why? Because it's, it's a harmful creature. It might hurt other people. And he, the Prophet said, Allah subhanahu wa revealed to that Prophet, is it because you were bit that you were destroying a nation of the nations that glorify me? Again, what's our Prophet telling us? Allah to understand that these are nations and they have their place. And we have to find our place with them. Or another hadith in Sahih Bukhari again, how to interact with these ideas. The Prophet once came across two graves. And he said to his companions, these people are being tormented in these graves. And then he took some, a living, like a stalk, if you like, from a palm tree, snapped it in half, and he dug it into these two graves. And he said to his companions, this torment will be lessened so long as these, part, these stalks stay moist, stay alive. And many of the ulama said, well, what's the connection? It can only be that while they're living, they're in a particular form of praise. And a particular form of praise in that grave will lessen, a form of light, a form of way of interacting with the praise uh, which is in the world. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that, therefore, He says about the, His servants, where the slaves of the All Merciful are those then who, when they walk on the earth, they walk gently. Why? Because there's a relationship there. What's a relationship? Well, we're all directing ourselves. And I find my peace when I align myself to what you've aligned yourself to. The Prophet ﷺ on this point, he said about in Surah Al-Zalzala, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says on Judgment Day, the earth speaks its news. And he said to his companions, do you know what that news is? The earth will testify to what was happening on its back. An idea of, again, it's an odd idea, you see. It's a form of living earth uh, that the Sunnah is uh, speaking of. But this relationship is reciprocated. And so that, that, that's why the second point is an idea of mutual love through that mutual connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Prophet said وسلم, in hadith in the Jami of Tirmidhi that verily God and the angels and those in the heavens and those in all of the earths, even the ants in their holes and even the whales, even the fish, what do they do? لَيُصَلُّونَ عَلَى مُعَلِّمِ النَّاسِ الْخَيْرِ they are all supplicating and praying for the one who teaches people the good. So what is the good? It is the teachings of these prophets. What is that teaching ultimately? It's about man finding his harmony in the world. The commentators say, why should the ants and the fish care about this? Because who else is going to tell people the rights of these creatures? Who else will tell people that you can't hunt them for sport? You can't do it like this. Everything has a manner. It's this one individual, those like this individual, the people who teach the good. And so the whole universe, the hadith is saying, appreciates the man who brings society into harmony with all of that. It's a form of reciprocal relationship. 
Uh, there's a very interesting verse in, in, in the Quran also about the people of Pharaoh. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about, you know, they were taken out of these beautiful gardens and blessings that they enjoyed, and then they were drowned in the sea. And a very odd expression, فَمَا بَكَتْ عَلَيْهِمُ السَّمَاءُ Allah says of the Pharaoh and his people, the sky didn't cry over them, and the earth didn't cry over them. And the commentators say, for example, Ibn Kathir in his commentary says, yeah, why should they cry over them? They weren't bringing the earth to life with their prayers. They weren't, you know, their supplications weren't rising to the sky. So what is the sky missing with their absence? Nothing. And that's why a number of the early community too, took a flip idea from this verse, that the earth and sky do cry for the one who populates that space with what's in harmony with the world. This is narrated, for example, by Mujahid, the student of Ibn Abbas, said, yeah, the earth and sky cry for like for 40 days. And he says, why not? He was prostrating on that earth. He was bowing on that earth. His tasbihat were hum in the air, like the humming of bees. Why wouldn't they miss him? Why wouldn't the world feel his loss and her loss? Another hadith inside Bukhari, a, a funeral was being gathered, and the Prophet ﷺ commented, and he said, Mustarihun wa mustarahun minhu. Someone who's found comfort, and someone from whom people have found comfort. Uh, and they asked him what he meant, and he said, oh, the, the believer when he dies, he finds comfort. From what? From the exhaustion of this life. And from the, the pain and the hurt that comes in this life. He's found comfort from all of that because he's moved on to the mercy of God. And the contrast, he said, as for Al-Abd al-Mu'min in this hadith, and the contrast was with Al-Abd al-Fajir, the, the, the wicked slave. When he dies, the Prophet said, people and towns and trees and animals, they're like, it's, it's nice that, that the person's gone now. So what's this contrast saying? That the believer is someone, trees find comfort in that person's presence. The person, as, as Ghazali says, he wouldn't break a twig without some purpose. That's not showing gratitude for the blessing of fingers, it's just showing gratitude for the blessing of the tree. Everything has a purpose, everything has its place. The trees miss that person who didn't take anything from the tree except for a right reason and in a right way. And the animals miss that person. The believer is someone who respects. And you'll find very interesting things in the, in the commentary, in the biographies of scholars. Al-Imam al-Sanusi is a famous uh, author in tracts on Aqidah. And they talk about the care with which he would walk so he wouldn't kill ants, for example. They mention this in his biography. Uh, these are the people that then the animals and the trees have a reason to miss people like that. People who are in, in harmony with the world. So that's our second point then. The first point was it starts off with awe and wonder and trying to keep that fresh. It moves on from that to harmony. And the harmony is the single directedness of everything. Finding our place in all of that in the glorification of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And from that, we have a third idea which is shared of course, uh, which is simply gratitude. Understanding that we don't deserve this world. And if we're not grateful for it, we can lose it. And the Quran reminds us of that quite a great deal. There's a wise saying of a wise sage, Ibn Atayla Sikandari. He says, again, but you can say the interpretation of the Quran really. Man shakar al-ni'am, man lam yashkur al-ni'am, faqad ta'arrada li zawaliha. Whoever's not grateful for blessings, he's exposed himself to losing them. وَمَنْ شَكَرَهَا فَقَدْ قَيَّدَهَا بِعِقَالِهَا 
So if he's grateful, then he ties his, his blessings down. How do you keep your blessings? By being grateful. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala frequently mentions, you know, for example, Tibaraka Livi Jaala Fisamai Burujan, Wajala Fihirajan, Wakamara Munira. Truly blessed is the one who made in the skies these constellations and a burning lamp and a light giving moon. And he made the day and the night something which alternates. Why? Whoever wishes and wants to recollect and to show thanks. Gratitude is not an option though. Gratitude is, is a duty. And leaving gratitude has consequences. In Surah Yasin, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks of these animals. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them an'am. Minha rakubuhum wa minha ya'kulun. On these creatures they ride and from them they eat. Walhum fiha manafi' wa masharib. And they have so many benefits and they drink of its milk. Afala yashkurun. Are they going to be grateful? So the idea is gratitude is not an option. It's a challenge. The world is a challenge. Are you going to be grateful? Are you going to be grateful? And if not, then you have to watch out. Uh, the Quran reminds us, well, what if that rain, what if you wanted to make it burning and salty? What would you do? Nothing. You can't. What if you destroyed all of your crops and your harvest? What would you do? Nothing. The people of Saba in Surah Saba in the Quran, beautiful gardens, all destroyed. They weren't grateful. The man of two gardens, another Quranic story. The people of the garden who went to steal all the fruits. Again and again, the simple idea. If you're not grateful, then you have to watch out. And so it's on this foundation, which is a very humbling foundation, awe, gratitude, appreciation, relationship. It's on that foundation on which a very important Quranic ideal is then based. And it's the ideal of Khilafah often translated as vicegerency. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he said to the angels, in the right towards the beginning of the Qur'an, that I'm sending a representative on the earth. And so man's coming to earth is not seen as any kind of fall to grace, or fall from grace. Rather, in the garden, man learned something about sin and repentance. And then he came on the earth for an important function. And that function in the Qur'an is called khilafah. It's taking, if you like, God's place to do a particular function on the earth. The ulama, when they speak about this khilafah, they do ultimately speak about imaratul ard, cultivating the earth, bringing forth its treasures. Then the, the Quran presents the earth as this a store of incredible treasures. You have to bring it out. You have to build your civilizations. You have to do your agriculture. You have to do something that the animals and your civilization can benefit from. Think about the treasure store of the earth right now. Your phones, your camera, your clothing, the clock. There's nothing in this room except it came from the earth. Everything came from the ground. It's an incredible store of treasures, a remarkable store of treasures. You have to bring it out with your interest, with your industry. The Quran ref refers to this as ibtigha al-fadl. You know, go out there and seek the bounty of God. This is what it means to seek the bounty of God. Build these great civilizations, but on what foundation? If industry is built not on the things we've been talking about, you don't have harmony. You have bloodshed, and you have destruction, and you have an earth that just is a mark of what you've laid waste to. 
And so this great industry, almost, the human capacity to build, to bring out wonders from the earth, it's founded on those ideas. That's what the Khilafah is. The great human who's in great harmony. And it all comes back to this foundation of the love of God. Jalla Jalaluhu. Islamic history gives us a lot to reflect upon, uh, a great heritage for us to feel small in front of, really, about this notion of khilafah, this notion of bringing, you know, a God-spirited industry, if you like, to the earth. Now, history is riddled with all kinds of actors, the good, the bad, and the ugly as you know, anyone who reads anything of any kind of history will know. But the point is not the actors, it's this, this civilization. What did it really bring? Uh, and there's a lot for us to learn about uh, in Islamic history, uh, in all honesty. And if we took a, just a case study, just one idea, we can call it cultivation, call it agriculture. Uh, and the Muslims have a fascinating history in agriculture. Uh, you know, deeply encouraged by the Prophet وسلم, who has a number of hadiths, uh, all encouraging what? The planting of trees. Uh, he says, for example, you know, whoever plants a tree or some other kind of crop, then no bird and no human and no beast will eat of it, except that a person has a charity for that. I'm encouraging people to take some dead piece of earth and bring it to life with something that some creature can benefit from. Or most shocking example of the, the urging to this one form of industry, which is we can call agriculture, is a hadith about the end of times in the Muslim of Imam Ahmad, the Prophet said, if the hour is about to stand upon one of you, but if your hand is this little sapling of like a palm tree, if you're able to plant it, then plant it. What does that mean? Now we can interpret it figuratively, saying if you can do any good and the world's about to end, do that good. But don't forget the literal meaning of what the hadith is saying. The literal meaning is planting trees. What is a plant? Why is planting a tree so interesting? Because it takes time. The fruits will take a long time and care for other people to benefit from after you're dead. But the world's about to end, as far as you can see. The Prophet says, don't worry about that. Plant that tree. Let the earth stay flourishing and let the future be in the hands of God. See, it's almost like this urgency. If you can plant a tree, plant that tree. And so you find this, the early conquest is a great interest in agriculture, uh, which, was an, which was an industry actually the Meccans didn't care much for. The Meccans were traders. When Abu Jahl died, he was killed by these, uh, well, he was stabbed by these youngsters from Medina. The Medinans were farmers. And one of his laments on his deathbed, which Ibn Mas'ud heard, was, if only it was something other than a farmer that had killed me. The idea is, you know, but the Prophet also no, he, he urged this idea. And so the, in the early conquest, this idea keeps coming again and again, this interest in agriculture. <coughs> the Prophet, the companion, Abu Dhar in Damascus, uh, Musa of Ahmad as well, seen planting trees. People say, why are you, you're this great companion, you've come on this conquest, obviously you're a respectable person in society, why are you planting all these trees? And he said, no, no, don't criticize me. And he narrated a version of this hadith that, well, any creature that benefits from this uh, tree, there's a, there's a charity in this. There's another companion who fought in Badr called Khuzayma ibn Thabit. Sayyidina Umar, uh, 
uh, in his caliphate almost certainly, he had acquired some land and the land was dead. And Umar said, can bring this earth to life, plant something in it, cultivate it. And he said, I'm old, I'm, you know, I'm just not interested in that stuff, you know. And Umar says, no, you have to do it. And then the son of this person called Amara, he said, I saw my dad with Umar planting in this little land just to get, just to get that land going. They narrate real wonders in Iraq uh, of this early Islamic conquest that uh, part of what, you know, so, so the instructions from Umar radiallahu anhu in the early conquest was, you know, let people be, let, let them carry on. You can collect some taxes and let them, you know, govern themselves. And he wanted, you know, the Arabs of the conquest to settle in, the, in their own towns, which they would build for themselves, in, you know, often called garrison towns. Just, you know, it was just an army encampment, and it over time became a town. And the two main encampments of Iraq were Basra and Kufa. Again, little garrison towns developed by these Muslim conquerors just to keep their people together. But they record real wonders about these towns. You know, the great effort and energy was put into drying out swamp land and building canals, which obviously the Persians were, were experts in, but, but utilizing all of this. Uh, fourth century chroniclers about Basra in Iraq, they re record real wonders. He's, you know, one of them, Al-Stakhri. Al yeah. I think I got his name wrong. Uh, he says, I had heard that there were about 200 odd thousand little canals in Basra and, and I never believed it until I went there and then I saw it. And he said, if you find an arrow in Basra, he said, just that distance where the arrow would fly, he said, you'd find several canals that it would fly over, each which could bear like a, a small boat. He said, and wherever you are in Basra, you'll see these canals and you'll see these trees. And they'd comment that the road from Baghdad to Basra, again, Baghdad, a city that they built and they populated with these beautiful trees as well. The road from Baghdad to Basra and Baghdad to Kufa, they said, was just dark with all these interlocking trees all the way across. And he would remark, oh yeah, the road from Baghdad to Basra, which is about 450 kilometers. He says, you can keep hearing these cockerels, you know, making their sounds all the way across the road for this whole, i.e. it's all alive. It's all, uh, you can say, cultivated land. Uh, they were really interested in that. Uh, Again, the great things that they brought to the Iberian Peninsula, Muslim Spain, was agriculture. And they did something to that land that the lands hadn't really seen. You know, again, everything they'd learned from you know, the Persians and the Indians, uh, they brought those lands to life. And they would boast that a squirrel could travel from Gibraltar to the Pyrenees without having to get off of a tree. That you could just all the way across. And they lamented in the centuries after they left that these, you know, some of these lands went arid again. And they brought, you know, to the Iberian Peninsula, they brought, you know, olives and oranges and lemons and rice and sugarcane and spinach and bananas and a whole host of fruit and vegetables that just didn't exist before. So this is the idea of what is this? You have to call this industry. But what kind of industry? It's a civilizational impetus to bring the earth to life. Again, without looking at the intentions of individual actors, what is this all for, ultimately? It's, it's for the benefit of people and the benefit of animals. Khilafa. That's how the scholars understood Khilafa. Uh, it's a lot for us to think about, uh, I think, in this one case study uh, on the question of uh, agriculture.
And even among just one example again of individual effort, again, with this civilizational impetus, interest in the earth, uh, the mention of a Hanafi scholar called Khairuddin Ar-Ramli, 11th century, you know, about, maybe about 400 odd years ago. Uh, they say he was the leading Hanafi scholar of his age, and that's actually like a social function, like he's the head sheikh kind of thing. And he was in Al-Azhar, and then he went back to his homelands in Ramallah in Palestine, and he found it kind of dead from fruit-bearing trees. And so he took it on himself like, like as, as a mission to bring this area to life. And they, they, they record, or it might be hard to believe, that with his own hands he planted 100,000 trees. Uh, and all these people joined him, and they said it became the most lush of these coastal towns uh, of P Palestine, through the efforts of this one jurist. So again, something to think about, of what it means to be... But all this is built on those ideas of harmony with the earth, uh, harmony with uh, the world. The Quran speaks about the, the opposite of this, when man is not in harmony, and the incredible destruction that means for the world. In Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمِنَ النَّاسِ Among people are those who مَنْ يُعْجِبُكَ قَوْلُهُ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا You know, his words about matters of this world really impress you. وَيُشْهِدُ اللَّهَ عَلَى مَا فِي قَلْبِهِ And he swears oaths that, you know, God knows that my heart is really good. وَهُوَ أَلَدُّ الْخِصَامِ But he is the most you know, severe of opponents. But when he turns, you know, when you turn your back and he turns away, what, what's he doing in the earth? He's wreaking corruption in the earth. And what's he doing? He's destroying crops and destroying the offspring of animals. And that's why Ibn Hazm, the, the Spanish scholar, he said this is a text a Quranic text, explicit, that whoever denies animals their feed and whoever neglects irrigating fruit-bearing trees is of the people who wreak corruption in the earth by the very text of the Holy Qur'an, if you like. This is the opposite of, of that khilafah. Or in another verse of the Holy Qur'an, ظَهَرَ الْفَسَادُ فِي الْبَرِّ وَالْبَحَرِ بِمَا كَسَبَتْ النَّاسِ uh, you know, corruption again has become manifest on the land and in the sea because of what people's hands have earned. Here, seemingly a reference to their, to their sins and the, con and the consequence of the earth almost holding back its treasures uh, as a consequence of, of this sin. So Al-Zamakhshari, for example, amongst the Quranic commentators says, yeah, this, this corruption in the seas and the land because of what men have done is a, is a reference to droughts you know, bad harvests, people going into the sea, not finding any fish. And the idea is the treasures have all sunken up. Why? Because of what you've earned. Again, the opposite, if you like, of this khilafah. Just as we close, though, I just want to say there's a question that's raised here. How this all relates then to questions of, you know, contemporary, obviously, interest. We speak a lot about scarcity you know, the drying up of what's on the earth now and its resources is obviously of the most pressing of topics. Is there something for us to think about in this, if you like, Quranic environmentalism? Um, there's some interesting ideas. Uh, a number of Quranic commentators were convinced there's no such thing as scarcity. Scarcity can never feasibly happen on the earth. Uh, taking from that a number of uh, Quranic verses, among them, 
For example, there's no creature except Allah is guaranteed its provision. Or for example, For example, there's no thing except that we hold its stores and we, and we reveal it with a particular measure. Or a verse about the creation of the earth, which spoke of, you know, that he blessed the earth and he determined, again, its provisions, either provisions for everything which needs to benefit from this earth. And so many commentators said, no, the earth will always have enough to offer, always. Uh, that's what the earth is. And what's our job then, as God's, if you like, representatives on earth, is to make sure that happens. Again, bringing the earth to life. There's an interesting report, I'll just read it to you, just for us to think about, uh, from, the 2000, oh, yeah, from the 2006 Human Development Report, which spoke about the idea of water scarcity. Uh, there's some things to think about, I guess. He says, and, and, I, and I quote, some commentators trace the global challenge in water to a problem of, of scarcity. We reject this starting point. The availability of water is a concern for some countries, but the scarcity at the heart of the global water crisis is rooted in power, poverty, and inequality, not in physical availability. There is more than enough water in the world for domestic purposes, for agriculture, and for industry. The problem is that some people are systematically excluded from access by their poverty by the limited legal rights or by public policies that limit access to the infrastructures that provide water for life and for livelihoods. In short, scarcity is manufactured through political processes and institutions that disadvantage the poor." End quote. So the question is, you know, in all of this, again, if we can call this little vision of, you know, some Quranic thoughts about man and his role in the world, is what's our responsibility in the face of all of this? Uh, we can say if the earth has enough, and we, if you like, as God's caretakers of the earth, it's our job to make that enough materialize for the sake of people, civilization, and the animals. And if it's people themselves who are the cause for, for famine and drought and the destruction of everything on the earth, then this the question is then our responsibility in the face of that. Now as individuals, obviously, there's very little that the majority of us certainly uh, can change. But it's just something I think for us to think about, what is our responsibility? You know, the hadith says, if you see an evil, you change it with your hand. If you can't, then with your tongue. And if you can't, then with your heart. Uh, so what does that mean in the face of all of that? So as, as you know, what the Quran is presenting in the world is not this neutral site you can just walk right by. Uh, as if it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with you. The first part of what we said today was your own spiritual connection to God. And this last part is your own responsibility to man and to the earth and to its creatures. So you can never completely bypass what's, what, what, what this world is. And so, you know, if the believer's role on the earth is to be a witness, to testify to the covenant of God, whether he in that or she in that particular time or place is weak or strong, then what really is our responsibility towards the world is something then for us to think about uh, on these very large challenges which obviously are affecting everyone. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alam. So we'll just, I thought, leave some points uh, with reflection on that. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Cambridge Muslim College. 
training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.